God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. So if you need to use 1 John 1, 9, confession of sin, privacy of your soul to God the Father, just to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study God's Word under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we have that opportunity, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have loved us with such a great love and such a tremendous demonstration that you sent your Son to become a man, perfect humanity, that he might go to the cross and there die as our spiritual substitute, that he might bear in his body on the cross our sins. Father, we pray that uh, we might come to a greater understanding of that as we study his person, And Father, we pray too in terms of missionary outreach, as we just heard from Dave, that that, uh, we would continue to support our missionaries through prayer, specifically for Jody and this team going into Cuba this next week, that you would just open doors, that in the midst of the hostility of the angelic conflict, that they would persevere, that you would uh, keep back the forces of evil, and that you would go forth before them, and that they would have... Uh, responsive hearers who would be uh, ready to hear the word and respond to the gospel. And Father, we pray that you would give them clarity and that you would give them patience and endurance during these next two weeks. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would make these things clear to us and that we would be responsive to the challenge of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing our study of the gospel of John. But right now we are in sort of a holding pattern at the beginning of John 17. Now at John 17, there's a bit of a break in what is called the Upper Room Discourse. Upper Room Discourse in John covers a section from John 13 through John 17. In John 13, Jesus and the disciples come together to celebrate the Passover meal the night before he goes to the cross. He then begins to give them specific instructions related to the coming age, coming to what will take place in terms of his leaving and his ascension to heaven, the uh, descent of God the Holy Spirit, the first advent of God the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and the unique spiritual life of the church age. And he culminates, he brings this together in this prayer in John 17 that is referred to as the real Lord's Prayer, the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the themes of this prayer, we see some fantastic principles related to the spiritual life. But as we approach this prayer, we are stopping for a few weeks 
to take this time to look at who Jesus Christ is and why that is important for us to understand it. The reason I'm doing this is because as we come to the conclusion of this high priestly prayer, Jesus is going to be arrested in Gethsemane and we're going to enter into the passion of our Lord, that which is his suffering. That's what the word passion refers to as his suffering uh, on our behalf as the substitute for our sins on the cross. That doesn't make sense if we don't understand who he is in his person. And also because as we come to this prayer, the thing that should come to our mind, a question that should come to our mind at the beginning is Jesus comes to the Father in prayer, in petition, in intercession, is that Jesus is engaged in prayer, which is an act of subservience and dependence upon God. And that should raise the question, what exactly is the role, the relationship of Jesus to the Father? He is obviously subordinate in his humanity, but is it just in his humanity? Is his subordination to the authority of the Father something that is just restricted to time, or is it something that relates to eternity? Furthermore, the question that we should ask is, as we approach this, is how well do I really understand the doctrine of the Trinity? We are taught that God exists as, as one in essence and three in person, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But what difference does that really make? And that's part of why we are engaged in this study, and it is a lengthy study. I'm trying to move beyond the basics, and for those of you who are New, haven't been uh, attending here very long, or visitors here this morning. Our whole philosophy is that the issue in the spiritual life is to learn God's Word and to learn to think as God would have us to think. And that means that we need to learn to think accurately about reality, which starts with thinking accurately about God, who He is, and understanding these relationships. That if God is the Creator and we are the creature, then everything that happens in the created realm somehow reflects God. As I have been thinking more and more deeply about these things in the last few weeks, I have been impressed with the fact that that rarely do we have the vocabulary or the categories to really think about God. You know, in most churches, for some reason, and it just drives me nuts when I when I think about it, they they have sermons on Sunday morning. We don't have sermons here. We just teach the Bible. They have sermons on Sunday morning, which is 20, 30-minute homilies that emphasize a lot of application and very little teaching. See, and here's the odd thing, is that God has gifted men in the church with the gift of pastor-teacher. The term teacher defines how he pastored, what the role of pastor is. It's not counseling, hand-holding, you know, warm fuzzies, all those things that usually go on in churches. The pastor shepherds the sheep by feeding them. That's why Jesus told Peter... And John 21, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Well, feed my sheep. How do you feed the sheep? You feed the sheep by teaching them the word. So in your typical church, what happens is the pastor gets up and gives 20, 30-minute homilies, and it is left to the, quote, Sunday school teacher who has no seminary training. All he has usually is some kind of quarterly, probably doesn't even have the gift of teaching, And it's left to the Sunday school teacher to carry the brunt of the teaching in the local church rather than the man who supposedly has gone through three or four years of seminary, knows the original languages, understands theology, and is the professional. 
And, and it just amazes me that it, as I have observed what has happened in popular Christianity over the last 30 years, that the brunt of the teaching in a local church falls upon lay people who usually have no formal training, and it, the pastor has moved more and more from being a teacher and communicator of the truth. He's not even the worship leader anymore. That's the song leader. The pastor now comes along, and he is really the, the manager, the CEO, and he's viewed more as an administrator, facilitator, than he is a teacher, feeder, the spiritual leader of the congregation. So we do things a little differently around here because of our philosophy of ministry that, that the role of the church is to learn everything that God has for us from the Scriptures, and that means that the pastor's primarily, primary job is to study and teach and to communicate the Word. So we are looking at the doctrine of the person of Jesus Christ, and we're building this in a very methodical, step-by-step fashion. As we started to look at this whole subject about three weeks ago, the first thing we did was to go through the doctrine of the Trinity in about four or five points to explain the the concept, just as a very basic concept, that God exists as three persons. There's plurality in the Old Testament, there's plurality in the New Testament. The, we went through the evidence to show that, that there are clear statements in the Old Testament to show that there are distinctions in the Godhead. For example, when God is creating man, he says, let us make man in our image. There's a plural pronoun there, which emphasizes that the, the concept of plurality in the Godhead. Yet other passages talk about the unity of God and the uniqueness of God. And that was the first section. So it's, we're, we're establishing some building blocks of thought here. The second building block we began last Sunday morning, and that is to focus on the deity of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is undiminished deity. He is not just a man. He is not simply a good man. The scriptures do not even teach that he is a man that somehow was given deity, but that in Jesus Christ dwells the fullness of deity bodily. So he is undiminished deity. Now we covered seven points last time, and just to give you a little review, we'll we'll hit those seven points without going into all of the all of the detail associated with it, so you can place yourself in the context. First of all, we saw that titles exclusive of deity are ascribed to Jesus. He's called the great God in Titus 2.13, the mighty God in Isaiah 9.6, and the true God in 1 John 5.20. Titles exclusive of deity are ascribed to him. Secondly, we saw that Jesus Christ in many passage, passages is inseparably identified with God. For example... In John 14, 8 through 9, to know Jesus Christ is to know God, and to see Jesus Christ is to see God. He is called the image of the invisible God, the flashing forth of the glory of God. And we're told in Colossians 2, 9, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Third, we saw that Jesus Christ is clearly called God. Thomas calls him God, my Lord and my God. Stephen calls him God. The Ethiopian eunuch referred to him as God. Paul, Peter, Jude, James, and John all refer to Jesus Christ as God. So he is called God by almost every author of Scripture. Fourth, we saw that he has the attributes of deity. He is holy. He is righteous. He is love. He is uh, eternal. He has, he is full of grace and truth, John 14, John 1, 14. 
He is good. He is immutable. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever in Hebrews 13. He is omniscient. He demonstrates his omniscience. He is omnipresent. He is omnipotent. All of these are ascribed to Jesus. Fifth, we saw that he is worshipped as God. And the scriptures are very clear that God and God alone is to be worshipped. Angels do not want to be worshipped. They reject worship. But Jesus accepts worship. And the scriptures talk about the fact that he is worshipped as God. He is worshipped by the angels at his birth. He was worshipped by the shepherds at his birth. He is worshipped as God by the leper he healed, by the Canaanite woman, by the blind man he healed, by the apostles and many others. So he is worshipped as God is point five. Point six, Jesus personally claimed to be God. He claimed to be one with God, to have the same essence. He said, I and the Father are one in John 10.30. He claimed to be God. Uh, point number seven, he performed the works which only God can perform. The works unique to God are ascribed to him. He is said to be the creator, that nothing has come into existence apart from him in John 1.3, and that by him all things hold together in Colossians 1.16. He forgives sins, he raises the dead, he answers prayer, he judges men, he possesses the glory of God, he performs miracles, he cleansed the temple as his house, he cast out demons, and he claimed to defeat Satan at the cross. All of this indicates that he is God. And that brings us to the eighth point, which is where we ended last time, that the New Testament ascribes to Jesus the works of Yahweh. Yahweh is the Sacred tetragrammaton, that is, tetragrammaton means four letters, tetra, four, grammaton, letter, Y-H-W-H. In Hebrew, there are no vowels. All you have is consonants, and the proper name of God in the Old Testament is Yahweh. This was translated wrongly as Jehovah, and the way you get Jehovah, you have to understand that, that a lot of Germans did scholarship in, in Hebrew, and so in German, when you have a J, you pronounce it with a Y. And uh, when you have a W, you pronounce it with a V. So there's always this, this uh, interchange between the, the Y and the J and the W and the V. So they had the J-H-V-H was the way it was written by Germans. And um, uh, they, in, in the Hebrew text, what you have is the, the, the letters, the consonants of, of Yahweh... But the Jews never read that out loud. It's the sacred name of God, and they're almost superstitious about it. And they have tremendous respect and deference for the name of God. So instead of reading God when they read the scriptures out loud, they would read Adonai, which is the word for the Hebrew word for Lord. And what they would do in the text is in order to remind the reader of this, they would insert the vowels, uh, in the Hebrew vowels of Adonai under the consonants for Yahweh, and the result is the English word Jehovah, which has no basis in the English text. Now, sometimes when somebody comes and knocks on your door, maybe you can use that. Speaking of witnessing, as we look at the issue before us this morning in terms of ascribing to Jesus the works of Yahweh from the Old Testament... This is some tremendous material and verses for you to 
take notes on and learn the next time you get an opportunity to witness to someone who is Jewish. This is a tremendous approach with a, a Jew to show the comparison of Jesus in the New Testament to Yahweh of the Old Testament. So the New Testament clearly ascribes to Jesus what is specified of Yahweh in the Old Testament. Now in Psalm 83.18, we see that the Bible clearly asserts that Yahweh is preeminent. He is the preeminent one in the Old Testament. He has priority over all creation and is distinct from creation and he is unique. Psalm 83.18 reads, That they may know that thou alone, whose name is Yahweh, art the most high over all the earth. So this is our starting point. That the Old Testament clearly affirms that Yahweh alone is God. Now along with this, there are a number of other things that the Old Testament affirms about Yahweh. First of all, in Zechariah 12.10, we are told that Yahweh himself is pierced. Look at this verse. I will pour out on the house of David, God is speaking here, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Again, you see this distinction of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Now, if you look at the text here, a couple of things ought to stand out here. It refers to the one pierced as an only son, and also firstborn, and the term firstborn is used in Colossians 1, 16 and 17 to refer to Jesus. And it doesn't mean first in the sense of time, the first one, and then there's a second one, a third one, and a fourth one like that, but first in the sense of priority. And this is that Jesus is the preeminent one. That's really the best translation of Colossians 1, that Jesus is preeminent and has honor over all creation. So the point is that in the Old Testament it speaks of Yahweh being pierced and this of course is fulfilled through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross and that's in all of the Gospels. Third point, the Old Testament speaks of Yahweh as the first and the last. Isaiah 44.6 says, Thus says Yahweh the King of Israel and His Redeemer the Lord of hosts. Notice here, even here, there seems to be a distinction of person in this verse. Thus says Yahweh, on the one hand, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, a second person seems to be implied here, Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of hosts, literally Yahweh Sabaoth in the Hebrew, meaning the Lord of the armies. I am the first, and I am the last, and there is no God beside me. When we come to the New Testament, we find that the, this is ascribed to Jesus in Revelation 1.8. Jesus is the first and the last. I am the Alpha. Alpha is the first letter in the, in the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter in the Greek alphabet. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. And this is Jesus Christ speaking in Revelation 1.8. Who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. 
Revelation 1.17, And when I saw him, this is John writing, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. So to Jesus in the New Testament is ascribed the same title as to Yahweh of the Old Testament. Fourth point. Isaiah saw and described the glory of Yahweh in Isaiah chapter 6. There we see that tremendous vision where he falls on his face and he says, I am a man of unclean lips. Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. Now, who is this King, the Lord of the armies? Well, we discover that John identifies him for us in the Gospel in John 12:41. John says, These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. And John is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. So who is it that, that Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6? He saw the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, identified as Yahweh in the Old Testament. Furthermore, Yahweh is described in the Old Testament as the shepherd, the shepherd of Israel, Psalm 23.1, The Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now this is a particularly important psalm to pay attention to because the inference here is that because the Lord is my shepherd, I have no needs. See, we live in a society today that is need-oriented and and we try to handle all the problems and diagnose all problems on the basis of a need-oriented psychological systems. Well, the reason you do this or you do that is because you have, you have needs or unsatisfied needs. And the point for the believer is that because God is our shepherd, we have no needs. God has supplied everything. He is sufficient in His grace. His revelation is sufficient, and He has provided everything in life. So we have no need anymore, no matter what our circumstances, no matter how difficult it may be, no matter what hardships may, we may encounter, in reality we have no needs. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And who is the great shepherd? Hebrews 13.20 Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the Lord Jesus to the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus, our Lord. So he is the great shepherd of the sheep, which is what he claimed in John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life as a substitute for the sheep. There you have pair plus the genitive, which should be translated substitute. For is, indicates that in English, but it's weak. I like to translate that with a fuller sense as a substitute because that's what it signifies, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross. He went to the cross to die in our place. So the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Sixth, Yahweh in the Old Testament is called Israel's rock. He is Israel's rock. This is a picture of his steadfastness, of His omnipotence, of His power, that God is unshakable, that nothing is more powerful. He indeed is a fortress for us. In Deuteronomy 32, 3 and 4 we read, For I proclaim the name of Yahweh, 
ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, this is a title for God here, the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteousness, righteous and upright is he. So rock brings to bear the images of immutability, of steadfastness, of faithfulness, of unshakableness. Psalm 18.2 Yahweh is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. That it is God who gives us the, the protection in whatever situation we are in. That He is the one who completely surrounds us and protects us. And when we take refuge in Him, there is nothing greater. If God is for us, Paul wrote, who can be against us? In the New Testament, Jesus is identified as the rocker. Further, let's look at Psalm 62, 1 and 2. My soul waits in silence for God only. From Him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. And then Jesus is identified as this rock in 1 Corinthians 10, 4. And all drank the same spiritual drink, referring back to the Exodus generation when the, the, uh, Moses struck the rock the first time, indicating the suffering of our Lord. He is the rock, and from him comes our nourishment because he was uh, struck for our transgressions. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. So the Old Testament identifies Yahweh as the rock, and the New Testament, Jesus, is the rock. Seventh, every creature will bow down before Yahweh in the Old Testament. Isaiah 45:23 says, I have sworn by myself the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will will swear allegiance. And this is Yahweh speaking in Isaiah 45, 23, that every knee will bow, every tongue confess. And this is the same thing picked up by Paul and ascribed to Jesus in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore also God highly exalted Him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Old and New Testament, Old Testament ascribes to Yahweh the, this act of every knee bowing, every tongue confessing, and in the New Testament it's ascribed to Jesus. Eighth, Yahweh is described in the Old Testament as the only Savior, the only Savior, Isaiah 43.10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, in order that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. So Yahweh is the one and only God, the one and only Savior in Isaiah 43:10 and 11. In Isaiah 45:21 it is reaffirmed, declare and set forth your case. 
Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord, the Yahweh? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Then when we come to the New Testament, Jesus is stated to be the only way of salvation. Acts 4.12 And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So the Old Testament describes Yahweh as the only Savior. The New Testament, Jesus is the only Savior. They are identified. Point number nine. Yahweh himself will reign personally in Jerusalem in the promised kingdom. Isaiah twenty four twenty three. Then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed. So we have the picture of the same thing that we see in Joel 2, the moon darkened the sun. All of these images in the heavens indicate that when the Lord comes in His kingdom, it is not just an earth event, it is a universe event. It has ramifications throughout the universe. And this is a theme that is is quite interesting. In fact, this last week, every time I hear Charlie, he seems to drop some sort of little jewel that gets you thinking about how we think about science and creation in the universe. And, of course, when he was here two weeks ago, if you, don't, if you haven't heard that tape, you ought to get it. That ought to give you something to think about. I don't know if he mentioned this when he was here. First time I've heard him say this, and that is he, he built off of two points. Point number one, and we've, we, he's taught this here before. I'm not sure that this is true. This is just speculation. We don't know for sure about some of these things. But... Uh, once we launch the Hubble telescope up into heaven, up into the, up in the upper atmosphere, it was able to take pictures throughout the, every direction, 360-degree sphere. And that demonstrates, as they took pictures, what they saw is the star density throughout the uh, universe is equal. No matter which way you look from the Earth, the density of the stars are the same. Well, that means one of two things. Either... The earth is the center of the universe, or the universe is infinite. Now, it's an axiom of philosophy that you can only have two infinites, because one would exclude the other. So, basic axiom, excuse me, basic axiom, you can only have one infinite. You can't have two infinites. So, either God is infinite or the creation is infinite. You can't have two infinites. Now... Evolutionists, of course, offer the, that, that the universe is infinite. But if the universe is finite, and as believers we must think of it as finite because God created it, so therefore it is finite, then that would mean that the entire universe, everything is centered on planet Earth, which makes sense in terms of the whole doctrine of the angelic conflict that God has created man for a specific purpose, put him here in order to demonstrate certain things, and that, of course, means the implication is that there's no extraterrestrial life other than angels. That solves the whole problem right there. The other thing that's interesting, you get back in the Old Testament, we didn't spend any time on it when we went through Joshua, and that is you have two events in the Old Testament that are very difficult to explain on the basis of the modern scientific conception of the universe. Just because we don't know. I mean, God obviously can do anything. He's omnipotent. But it's interesting to try to explain both Joshua's longest day 
when he does battle with the Gibeonites, and in order to give them the coolness of the day to do battle, God causes the sun and the mood to stop. They don't slow down. They, it doesn't take a day or two. It's just instant cessation of motion in the heavens. And then later on, in the rule of Hezekiah, in order to, for God to validate what he has told Hezekiah, he says the shadow of the sun on the steps will reverse which means the sun must have reversed itself in the heavens. Now, we live in a post-Galileo society where we have all been taught in school that, that the universe is not geocentric. That was the old, an old conception. But it amazed me that Charlie knows of a scientist who is a geocentrist. Now, I don't know that he's right, but this is an interesting thing to think about. He's not only is he a geocentrist, and not only is he a scientist, but he was one of the programmers who plotted the spacecraft courses for both the Mercury and Apollo landings, which means that at that time he was a geocentrist. That means the Earth is at the, not only at the center, but that instead of the Earth really rotating and revolving around the Earth, everything's really moving around the Earth and the Earth is stationary point is that all motion is relative. You ever had the experience when you're sitting in a car and you're maybe looking at a book or something down the car and the car and your car is sta- stable and the car next to you begins to move and you think you're moving and you suddenly, whoa, wait, wait a minute. See, all motion is relative. And in a universe, it's feasible. Now, I'm not a scientist, so I, I don't know all the ins and outs of this, but Charlie certainly is and he thinks that there's at least validity to the theory, it's not just something to dismiss out of hand, that the earth is stationary, it's the universe and everything else that's moving around it. And then what God does in Joshua and he just stops the universe. See, if you stop the planet, you've got to explain, well, what happens to gravity? Why didn't everything just fly off? Interesting to, to, to think about those things, but you have all of these passages in the Scripture that talk about the universe-wide impact of God's work on planet Earth. It is not something that just happens here. It extends throughout the heavens. And that's what happens in Isaiah 24, uh, 23. It is also expressed, Zephaniah, then the Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, Yahweh, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. Yahweh your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. This is the victory of Jesus Christ, really, that we know of, as we'll see in a minute. The victory of Jesus Christ at the battle of Armageddon as he comes in the second coming, second advent to establish his kingdom on the earth. This is spelled out in Revelation 19 and following, starting in verse 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war, and his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. This is the title of Jesus Christ, the Logos, in John 1.1. 1, 1. Revelation 19.14, And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, these are the saints, the believers, church-age believers who are coming with him 
in his army, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And in Revelation 20, verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So clearly the New Testament ascribes to Jesus the ruling and reigning of Yahweh in the Old Testament. They are viewed as one and the same person. Furthermore, the coming of Yahweh in the Old Testament, the foretold coming of Yahweh, was announced by a forerunner. In other words, you will know when Yahweh is coming because there will be a, uh, someone who comes first to announce his way. Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice is calling, Clear the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. In the Gospel of Mark, this passage is quoted and applied to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and to John the Baptist. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And then finally, Yahweh is prophesied in the Old Testament to be a stumbling block for Israel. Isaiah 8, 13 and 14. It is Yahweh of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary, but to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And then in 1 Peter 2, 7 Peter writes, This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone, that is, in context, he talks about the Lord Jesus Christ as the stone, the stone which the builders rejected, that's his rejection by Israel, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. So he applies the Isaiah 8 passage to the Lord Jesus Christ, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they are also appointed. Now, what we have seen here, and I think this is one of the most remarkable things to develop out of the Scriptures, is how many times you see Old Testament ascriptions to God, to Yahweh, applied in the New Testament to Jesus Christ. I'm simply saying in the course of building this, that Jesus is fully God, we have all of the ascriptions of deity given to him, and that he is identified intimately and inseparably with Yahweh throughout the New Testament. Now, what I have done in building this, we've looked at the doctrine of the Trinity first and foremost. Then we looked at the deity of Jesus Christ. And now we have to come back and start asking some, some more questions in terms of trying to understand his relationship to God the Father 
and God the Holy Spirit. First question I want to ask is, when did he become the Son of God? Was it at his birth? Was it at his baptism? Was it at his resurrection? Or at his exaltation? Did Jesus Christ become the Son of God? Or has he always been the Son of God? Now, the Scriptures ascribe to Jesus three different titles. He is called the Son of God. He is called the Son of Man. And He is called the Son of David. Now, it is clear that He becomes the Son of Man and the Son of David at His incarnation. Son of Man indicates His humanity. Son of David is a title for His Jewish royalty as and identifies Him with the Davidic covenant. You see, in Jewish idiom, if you are going to say, to ascribe a certain characteristic to someone, then you use the phrase, son of. For example, in the phrase, I am not a prophet or a son of a prophet, what that is not talking about, the phrase son of a prophet is not talking about having a father that is a prophet, but characterized by the gift of prophecy. Barnabas in the New Testament is called the son of encouragement. doesn't mean that his father's name is encouragement. It means that he is characterized by the attribute of being an encourager. When uh, in the Old Testament, if you were, if you were a, a deceptive one or antagonistic, you were called a son of Belial. That's the Hebrew version of an SOB, I guess. Son of Belial. Now, when Jesus is called the Son of God, it is not talking about physical descent. It is not talking about birth. It is talking about deity, that what is ascribed to him is full deity, not that he was born or that there was a time when he did not exist and then God had a baby. That is not the emphasis. The emphasis is on that, that he shares the same attributes as God. So the question we have to ask is when... Does he become the Son of God? There are people who think that he becomes the Son of God at the Incarnation, and they look at this as simply a functional title. But this has great implications. Not just, it's not just some silly exercise that, that, uh, well, what, that you go through as in theology, but it has significance for understanding relationships. Scripture defines God as existing eternally as a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They share the same identical essence. So they are one in essence, yet three in distinct person. Now, how do they relate to one another throughout all eternity? We know that when Jesus becomes a man and enters, he is subordinate to the Father. 
And we know that in terms of the Holy Spirit's ministry, and we studied this and we'll come back and clarify it again, that He proceeds from the Son and He proceeds from the Father. But is this something that is simply related to their function toward man or is it related to the eternal relationship of the Trinity? And the reason this is important comes down because it defines and provides a basis for understanding role relationships in almost every sphere of human society, whether you're talking about government, whether you're talking about employer-employee relations, whether you're talking about uh, male-female roles, the role of the husband, the role of the wife. Everything is based ultimately on our understanding of the Trinity. And that is exactly why in the last generation, as we have gone through a tremendous revolution in this country, a tremendous social revolution as a result of, of uh, feminism and how that has affected the workplace, how it's affected marriages, how it's affected... And, and we think differently now. You and I think differently than three generations ago. And some people would say, well, that's because we're not back in the Stone Age. No, it's because three generations ago... The culture, even though may not, people may not have been believers, the cultural view was still founded upon a Judeo-Christian view of, of reality, and it was based upon a Trinitarian concept. And so this cha- when you start changing the way society functions, society can break down and across the board on all divine institutions. And so we have to go back and understand this because the basic mantra of the feminist movement is that subordination equals inequality. That is a fundamental precept of the entire feminist agenda. And of course, I don't have time and don't want to get off into the relationship of the whole... Uh, all, so many different social things come off of this. The whole thing with with homosexuality and many other things are all tied up in this. But if this is a fundamental assumption that is made across the board in the feminist movement, if that's true, they're right. If that's not true, if that's not true, then... is wrong. That doesn't mean there aren't parts or aspects of it that might be right, but remember, it's all cast within this entire framework. So you've got to scrap it and start from a biblical base, and from a biblical base, build your view of culture, society, marriage, and role relationships. And as believers, that's part of what it means to renovate our thinking, that we are not to be conformed to the world, which is cosmic thinking. Worldliness is not going out and doing certain things. It is a way of thinking and thinking about reality. And the Scripture tells us we are not to be conformed to the thinking of the world, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, which means we have to get down to these kinds of issues, these basic assumptions about reality that we have been molded, we've been pressured and we've been pushed by the society around us to think about relationships a certain way, And the Bible says, no, you have to start off, get rid of everything, wipe it out, go back to ground zero and start over if you want to understand and have success as a believer 
in Christian marriage, in the home, as parents, family, everything is renovated here. And that's really where we're going. But because we're so caught up in, in so much false thinking that it is, I, I find it imperative that I build this from the ground up so that we understand every dynamic of this relationship within the Trinity because that then becomes the frame of reference for understanding all other relationships including and not just it's not just marriage in the home, it includes politics, it includes the relationship of government to the governed, every everything across the board has tremendous implications. So we have to ask the question, which we'll come back to next time, is Jesus essentially and eternally the Son of the Father? That is, is he the Son intrinsically? Or does he merely become a son? Is he the son extrinsically? Is just something he takes on? Or is he eternally the son? And then we have to define what that means. And what we're going to do in the process is go through a number of passages. And we'll just start right now introducing one in Psalm 2. Turn with me to the second psalm. This is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. And I just want to introduce it briefly and then next time we'll come back and see how it's used throughout the New Testament. It's a royal psalm uh, related to the coming of the king and the royalty of the Messiah and his relationship to the nations. And it pictures the time when Jesus comes back at the second advent and establishes his rule and reign at the beginning of the millennium. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising vain things? This is a picture of all the nations, all the cultures on the earth, all trying to assert their autonomy against God during the tribulation period. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. So, once again, see, your whole view of history should be transformed once you read that passage. Now, how's that? Because what you see is when nations are establishing themselves in independence, they are doing it against God. It may be against someone else. There may be all kinds of other things going on in the temporal sphere. But the divine view of history sees that they are taking their stand against the Lord. Whether they realize it or not, when you start rejecting divine absolutes, you're in rebellion against God against the Lord and against His anointed. This is what they say in verse 3. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. See, it's a rebellion against the authority of God. He who sits in the heavens laughs. See, God's got a great sense of humor. And He just laughs at mankind. Notice the Lord scoffs at them. Now, there are a lot of Christians that are so so hypersensitive that if somebody's a little bit sarcastic, they think, oh, Oh, you can't be compassionate. That's not being a good Christian. But God scoffs and He laughs at people. I mean, you ought to see the ridicule. If you get into the Hebrew text sometimes, it's just amazing how earthy it is and how God is presented as this God who, who is sarcastic at times and He ridicules people to point out their inadequacies and how silly it is for the creature to be trying to rebel against the Creator. Verse 5, Then He will speak to them, in his anger and terrify them in his fury. He says, But as for me, I have installed my king, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David pictured here in his kingship, upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. 
He said to me, now who is speaking here? He, referring to the Lord, said to me, who's speaking? The Lord Jesus Christ. Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Now that's where I'm going to stop. What does this mean, today I have begotten thee? When you get in the New Testament, we're going to discover that that's applied at different phases in the Lord's life. So when is He begotten? When does the Lord become the begotten Son of God? We'll look at that next time. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for the clarity of Your Word. What a fantastic, fantastic confidence it gives us to see how throughout the Old Testament these things that are ascribed to Yahweh are also ascribed to the Lord Jesus in the New Testament, that He is the fulfillment of of all of these plans and all of these prophecies, and that we see that You are a God who declares the beginning from the end and who has a perfect plan and is working out that plan in human history, and that You have not left us to merely speculate upon our future or upon our relationship with You, but You have given us precise, clear revelation. Father, we pray that as we think about the things that we have learned about you and about the relationship within the Trinity, that that it might help us to understand more fully our application in our realm, in our marriages, in our families, in, in, in our politics, in every realm of relationship that we encounter. Father, these are not simple matters, and it's only as the Holy Spirit teaches us and illuminates our mind that we can understand them. Father, we thank you above all that you have given us salvation, that you have sent your Son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, to take on flesh, to become a man, that true, that undiminished deity became true humanity and entered into human history for the purpose of going to the cross to die as our substitute. There he paid the penalty for our sins. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we in him might have the righteousness of God. Salvation is a free gift. If you're here this morning and you are uncertain of your eternal destiny, unsure of your salvation, you can know it for sure. The scripture says the the issue is faith alone in Christ alone. It's not changing your life, moral reformation, joining a church ritual or any of these things. It is simply believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. For as many as received him, the scripture says, to them he gave the power to be called the sons of God. That it is simply by faith alone that we accept the free gift of salvation. And it is ours forever. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here without salvation, that right now they would make that decision. Take this opportunity to make that decision to trust you. Father, we pray for those of us who are advancing believers, that we would be challenged by what we have studied, that we would be challenged to think more deeply about who you are and, and the Trinity and, and all of your character characteristics and attributes that we might grow to love you more deeply and more profoundly. For love is based on knowledge, not on emotion. Now, Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.